Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. For today's episode, we have the second part of our interview with Rob Syke about his book, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. Right. We had a great discussion with Rob. Uh, before we kick this off, I did have a, a little bit of internet connectivity issues with our interview. Thankfully, Jason, you were able to finish the, this uh, conversation and this interview. Yeah, the the joys of living in the COVID world where we're all remote and uh, rely on the internet. Great times. <laughs> it has been a challenge, but uh, our uh, discussion with Rob was great. Nonetheless, uh, we definitely want to plug his book, Food 5.0. Check it out. It's available on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. With that being said, let's get back to the interview. Rob, welcome back to the podcast for your, uh, the second iteration of this podcast interview. Uh, we ended the last conversation talking a little bit about convergence in your Food 5.0 book, uh, the last section. To start out, would you maybe uh, go over that last section again and kind of talk about the convergence of agriculture? Well, it's good to be back with you guys. And yeah, we're talking about the, the book Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. And in the first podcast, I took uh, your listeners through the first four iterations, which is the muscle era of agriculture, agriculture 2.0, the machine era, 3.0, the era of chemistry, and 4.0, the era of genetic engineering. And the second part of the book deals with agriculture 5.0, which I coin as convergence on the farm. It's a convergence of technology on the farm, and that's what we're really going to cover today. So Rob, when you're talking about convergence and 5.0 in the book, you have several topics that you talk about that are converging clearly. The first one I'd like to discuss is bioengineering. Can you talk a little bit about that? It bounces off of the fourth iteration of agriculture, which is genetic engineering. And when I talk about convergence in agriculture, I thought I would begin by discussing the convergence of biotech in, in modern agriculture. Agriculture by its very nature is uh, an industry built on growing things and those growing things are, of course, influenced by their genetics. And so one of the things that I wanted the readers to understand about modern agriculture is the degree of sophistication going into modern breeding techniques, uh, seeking to uh, build new kinds of crops or new ways to protect crops or to grow crops more efficiently in the face of changing climate or changing consumer demand and biogenetics are a big chunk of that. So one of the things that I talk about is uh, the fact that I've had my, my, my human genome sequenced. I did that uh, at La Jolla, California at the Health Nucleus Institute, which was uh, basically founded by, or the genesis was from Dr. Craig Ventner and Dr. Craig Ventner was the first person to lead the charge on the sequencing of the human genome. That is still continuing today. So when I show people my 22 chromosomes and show them some of my genetic sequence, including my ATCs and Gs, people are always fascinated by that. And I can tell you which cancers are recessive and which are dominant and what genetic uh, diseases I may or may not be predisposed to. People are always fascinated by those slides. And I say, isn't it interesting that you could be fascinated about that in medicine? And we are counting 
on biotechnology to give us uh, vaccines to fight diseases and fight COVID and this sort of thing. But when it comes to agriculture, the same technology is somehow vilified as being evil. And that's crazy because agriculture is a science and we should be able to use bioengineering to, to advance the science of agriculture. There's absolutely a double standard there. You reference a lot of different aspects of this bioengineering concept in your book. And so one of the things you talk about is nutritional improvements of crops. And so I'd like to hear a little bit of your perspective on some of those improvements that have been made and things that are um, in existence and things that are in the pipeline. Well, I think a good place to start again is just talking about human beings, such as those listening to the podcast. Uh, You are a product of your genetic makeup. The genetics that are combined from your mom and dad uh, made you. And and those genetics uh, come from a long line of ancestors who have, uh, you know, passed along their genetic materials to to make the person you are today. Um, That is a genetic code. However, we also have something called epigenetics, and epigenetics is the expression of of that genetics. Or uh, to use an example, if you took um, two identical twins, uh, twin boys, and you you starved one of them and, and the other you gave a complete diet to, then chances are the children of that, that nutrient-deficient boy would also be uh, somehow less uh, because of epigenetics. Now, the degree to which we can match our genome to the right foods uh, is called nutrigenomics. And this is an emerging technology right now that I find fascinating. And rather than buying food simply based on calories or protein or whether it's GMO or non-GMO, that's meaningless. I think what we should be doing is we should be buying foods that are based on attributes. What is the attribute, the nutrient density inside the food? As the science of nutrigenomics grows, we're going to do a better job of understanding, Preston, what you should be eating versus Jason, what you should be eating, versus what Rob should be eating. And that's based on matching our genome, our epigenetics through nutrigenomics uh, to the crops or the, the food that we eat. I think it's going to increase the ability for farmers to actually get paid for attributes. Certain farms can grow wheat, for example, that is high in selenium, And that has been shown to be advantageous at reducing the incidence of prostate cancer in men. So is it possible that we could identify those traits and eventually have that built into the crop through breeding technology that would elicit specific nutrients inside of the crop for humans to consume? When we reference nutrition, we also have examples of crops that have been bioengineered to a approach a certain need or to to attack a certain need or problem that is out there. Um, When I was in soybean breeding, we were working on soybeans that uh, had a different profile in the oil, and that was a a, a biotech trait to be more stable in the vegetable oil and not need to be hydrogenated, which, you know, we know hydrogenated oils aren't good for us. And so that was one improvement that was made. It was a fairly small market, but we have other things that potentially have a lot wider impact or a lot bigger impact we hear of, you know, golden rice. Can you talk about any of those kind of traits? 
Well, golden rice, uh, you know, bred back in 2002, just now making it in the marketplace, which is high in beta carotene, which would lend itself to vitamin A synthesis inside the body. That would be a godsend to a great portion of the population that is living primarily on rice. And so golden rice would prevent people from going blind. In, you know, East, East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, I have a farm in Uganda, um, iron deficiency and zinc deficiency is uh, prevalent in a lot of the human population. So having crops that are genetically engineered that could pull those nutrients into the, into the grain or into the fruit would be uh, a net benefit. Um, we have uh, crops that would uh, be prone to reducing wastage. So for example, how many apples are, are thrown away because they're brown. And in North America here, we have an Arctic apple. And I was on the farm in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia um, with, uh, with uh, Neil Carter eating the Arctic apple. And we cut it open and we had conversation for several hours and the apple didn't go brown on the table. And, and so consequently, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of apples would be uh, saved from being thrown in the garbage if we, if we didn't yeah, if we had that genetically engineered trait, I know on my desk right now, I have uh, apple bits that are Arctic apples and, and they don't turn brown. Uh, potatoes that would resist bruising, such as the innate potato. So there's all sorts of examples here of crops that, uh, you know, that are better because they're genetically engineered and they're better for the farmer and they're better for the, the distribution system, and ultimately they're better for the consumer. And I'm excited as I look to the future of having more and more crops that bring out those dense nutrient packages that we're looking for that simply would take forever with traditional breeding processes, but you know, biotechnology will bring these crops on board. And I should also say that when you're looking at, you know, the ability of agriculture to feed 9.6 billion people in the face of climate change, we are going to need biotechnology crops that would allow us to grow crops that are more drought tolerant or more saline resistant. So this whole thing is really, really important. And it's an important topic that you brought up when referencing these benefits of GM crops to consumers, because there's been a kind of a mindset out there that, yeah, they're, they make farmers' lives easier, but you know, they harm the environment or they're worse for me or whatever. But there's some real concrete examples of why these techniques produce things that are better for the consumer also. Well, when you think about one of the examples that's really exciting right now, which is corn, in the highlands of Mexico, they discovered a, a traditional corn variety that actually fixes nitrogen. This is, this is, this is amazing because corn is not a nitrogen-fixing plant. And and farmers spend a lot of money on nitrogen fertilizers every year. And uh, it's amazing that they have this uh, corn in, in Mexico that fixes nitrogen. So they extract the genetic material out of that traditional corn crop and are using it right now to try to increase the ability of traditional conventional corn crops, uh, hybridized corn, to actually fix its own nitrogen. And if we did that, we would have a net win for the environment because we would be able to produce corn that the society needs and we would be able to do so without adding extra nitrogen fertilizer to the environment. 
And I, I think that the consumer would respond to that. That would be uh, a beneficial thing for, for everyone. Yeah, there's always a lot of talk about, you know, you mentioned in the previous episode how farmers are as efficient as they possibly can be because they don't want to spend money on nitrogen. Nitrogen's not cheap. They don't want to spend money on fertilizer that's going to end up in some waterway and end up in the Gulf of Mexico or whatever. So with technology like this potentially coming on board at some point in the future, we really can have a huge positive impact on the environment. Well, if the consumer cares about the environment, then how can the consumer hold and withhold genetic engineering from agriculture? Because if you really understood agriculture and full cycle agricultural production, you have to give farmers the tools they need to grow the crop while minimizing the environmental footprint. And that's what you're talking about. So let's move on, Rob, to the next topic that you talk about when referencing Agriculture 5.0. So as you mentioned, this is a convergence of many technologies and many techniques. And you talk quite a bit in the book about precision agriculture. Now, precision agriculture is somewhat new. You know, you referenced in the previous episode about self-driving tractors, auto steer, but precision ag is really a big umbrella that encompasses a lot of things. So let's talk about a few of those things that fall under that umbrella. Well, the, the key to precision agriculture really is the, the precise application of inputs or the better application of inputs utilizing technology to grow a crop. Uh, it's the easiest way to describe it. So as I mentioned before, farmers are, are not interested in spending more money on pesticides or fertilizers than they have to. They need to grow a crop as economically as possible and they want to reduce the amount of uh, spillover or footprint into the environment. So the ability for us to be able to apply fertilizer or crop protection products or genetics, uh, depending upon microclimates or topography, is what we mean by precision agriculture. It's the ability to precisely apply inputs or manage the crop in a uh, in a smaller and smaller and smaller scale rather than on a field scale. So let's start with that, and I think that's a good start. So one aspect then of Precision Ag, we talk about collecting data. So there's all kinds of ways that we can collect data. And one thing that's starting to come on board in agriculture you hear more about from various companies is sensors. There's all kinds of sensors that a farmer can pick up, those that go in the soil, those that attach to the planter, um, there's just various things. So can you talk a little bit about sensors in agriculture? <laughs> That's a really big topic. Well, let's begin with the weather. So weather station sensors and weather sensors uh, can be applied now at field level. So you have all sorts of farmers that have got weather stations on their individual farms. And increasingly, you have uh, algorithms and weather algorithms that are being built that can provide data for things like rainfall, temperature, um, wind, et cetera, right down to the field level. So this is creating more precise information about what's going on with respect to abi abiotic pressures on the farm uh, from the environment. Uh, coupled with that, you can start to do things like soil sensors, which can give you soil moisture profile. And this has been a tremendous boost for farmers to be able to make better decisions based on target crop yields, based on what the moisture levels are. 
On the heels of that are, are technologies that are showing promise with nutrient sensor data, where we can get actual nutrient levels in the soil through the growing period. On top of that, we have all sorts of sensors you pull through the field. So things like the Varus uh, equipment, which measures electrical conductivity and soil texture. But on the heels of that is brand new technology like gamma ray technology that we pull across the field to ascertain what the nutrient status is. Or one of the latest, which is called spectroscopy, which is basically sliding a spectroscopy unit through the soil and picking up the nutrient status in real time while you're moving through the field. Now, this is all lending itself to massive amounts of data, but this data, if you can harness the power of it, will allow farmers to do a better and better job of precisely applying the nutrients and the crop inputs that are necessary to grow the crop. One of the things I'm concerned about, though, as we talk about precision agriculture, is poor agronomy. And remember that poor agronomy and precision agriculture is poor agronomy precisely applied. So a lot of times we hear about these exciting advances with technology, but if the underpinning agronomy isn't good, then really it's just technology and us chasing shiny objects. We need to make sure that that technology is coupled with good agronomic science. And this is really where the union of high tech and high touch comes together in agriculture as we're moving forward. There's so much going on when we talk about agriculture 5.0 and convergence that it's hard to almost get your head around. So I, you mentioned data and I want to talk about that data, what is done with that data a little bit, but I want to table that for a few minutes and I want to talk about some of the other aspects of precision ag and the ways that we capture that data. So, you know, a big buzzword a few years ago and that is starting to come into fruition now is unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs or drones. Can you talk a little bit about those? Well, the, the reason that drone technology is appealing is because uh, in the growing season, it's very difficult to scout. That's what we call it, walking through the crops or scouting the crop. It's very difficult. It's hard work. It's hot. You can't get through every acre of a field and then you have to do it again next week. So it's really difficult for agronomy or farmer people to, to scout crops. Well, the promise with, with uh, drones is really surrounding something called remote sensing. And so remote sensing really comes down to several different levels of granularity. We can use satellites today to provide in-season imagery of what the crop is doing and you know anywhere from one to three meter resolution. Then we have aerial imagery, which can get down to 10 centimeter resolution. And of course, drones, which could promise a pixelation that would get you down to the individual leaf level. So uh, every one of these things comes with more and more data. And with that data, we could make better and better decisions. Now, the question is what's economically feasible? Well, the economics around satellite are quite good. Uh, drones are good, but so long as the FAA and, and Transport Canada have line of sight where a human being's got to be attached to a drone to fly it over a field, I think that creates a no-fly zone because it just becomes very, very expensive. Nonetheless, sooner or later, we'll have unmanned drones flying over crops, ingesting data about what's going on in the field. I can give you a concrete example of how we're using um, you know, satellite or aerial imagery. Uh, Intellinair is a company for example, that's been able to provide 13 flights over fields in Illinois 
uh, providing farmers with 13 levels of data that they can utilize to uh, make algorithms that provide alerts to farmers about what's going on. With that data, we could do uh, things around biovegetation index maps. And with those biovegetation index maps, we could build variable rate fungicide maps that are slid inside the sprayer. So we're not putting on the same rate of fungicide over the entire field, but where there is no crop or low crop, we put on no fungicide. And where the crop is heavy, we go to the highest label rate. So those are some examples of how we're utilizing technology. And I call it remote sensing technology to provide better decision-making and direct us as to where and maybe even what we're having for problems in the field. That's a great example when you talk about potentially variable rate fungicide applications or when we when we talk about corn. I I don't know how many, you know, the farmer listeners have all been out in a cornfield in August at some point, but a consumer that's listening from the city maybe hasn't been out in a cornfield when it's pollinating, maybe never had the joys of detasseling or some of those other jobs. A cornfield in the middle of the summer is not a very pleasant place to be. So that kind of means that Farmers aren't very likely to get out there and walk every acre because, you know, it's just prohibitive to do that. And so they're just going to, you know, if they're going to do a fungicide application, they're going to put the same rate across the entire field unless they have some kind of better data that's been collected in some other way. Yeah, the crop that we deal with up here in Canada is canola. And canola, when it is uh, finished blooming and starting to pod, that's like walking through uh, uh, through just that's like walking through a field of, of hands just trying to grip you and hold you back. It's, it's just really, really difficult to scout fields. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, we have to have technologies to allow us to allocate the resources in a more, uh, uh, more efficient manner. You've talked a lot about data here, Rob, and, you know, some of the things that farmers do with that data that they collect, the decisions that they make. When it comes to data collection, there's a lot of options out there. Our, our company has Climate Field View, and there's other options that farmers can use to help them make these decisions and to manage their data. You know, without getting to specific product recommendations, what kind of aspects do you recommend that farmers would look for in a data collection platform? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is uh, you need to figure out as a farmer where your weakness is and, and what software platform would augment that weakness. For example, um, a lot of people are pretty good at agronomy, and I think most software platforms out there do a good job of agronomy. But I often wonder uh, how many of these software platforms do a good job of managing the harvest data and then ingesting that inventory into grain bins or into grain bags and then managing that inventory through tracking and disposal of that grain into contracts and ultimately tracking the pricing and, and matching everything that's happened on the farm with respect to plans to, to actual data. So like you said, there are a lot of data platforms out there, but I, I think that one of the things that really um, I think farmers are facing today is the data is almost too big. There's almost too much data coming in. And I think that data has to be synthesized down to some meaningful alert. In other words, there's so much going on out there. I really need to manage my farm by exception, not by what's going on. I don't need to be told that all the fields are good, for example. I need to be alerted 
which fields are not good. I need to be alerted which parts of the field are having problems. And I think that's where this uh, data stuff is really going to take off is when the data becomes, um, first of all, the data moves in seamlessly into the database systems, but what the farmer gets out of it is alerts and management decisions rather than him trying to or her trying to put in all these data points. Um, it's, been, it's been a long process, and I think there's some real uh, gold at the end of the tunnel as we get the data ingested from equipment directly and we start having some of this remote sense, sensing technology flag farmers about anomalies going on in the fields. So Robin, we talk about all this massive amounts of data. There's another aspect that we sometimes are starting to hear some talk about, including you reference it in your book just a little bit, about companies potentially paying farmers, crediting them for the sequestration of carbon which is going on in agriculture. So we can collect some data on how that's happening. What are your thoughts on the future of this type of approach? Well, I think this gets back to, again, society as a whole. Society as a whole is obviously concerned about climate change. And so agriculture has a tremendous role to play in the, either the removal or mitigation of greenhouse gases through the production of food. So if you think about soil and take a six inch slice of soil and you could increase the organic matter by 1%, that would mean that you fix roughly 12,000 pounds of carbon per six inches of soils, 12,000 pounds of carbon per acre, which is equivalent to about 20 metric tons of carbon dioxide. So for every 1% of organic matter that farmers increase soil, they pull 20 metric tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Well, then that leaves only two questions is, you know, could you prove that you've done it and how much you did and can you get paid for it? And so if society wants farmers uh, to reduce or remove greenhouse gases, we, we can. And, it, and the way I think that we can get rewarded for that is through sustainability indexes. So I live in the province of Alberta, Canada, uh, it's home to the oil sands here in Canada. And most people don't realize that Alberta is the only jurisdiction in North America that has legislated greenhouse gas reduction targets for the largest emitters in our province. And since 2007, I founded a company called AgriTrend Aggregation that has been quantifying farmer activity, turning that activity, no tillage, uh, or uh, livestock uh, feeding protocols into offsets that have been generating money for farmers to the tune of something like $50 million. Now that company is now owned by Trimble and Trimble continues to do that work here in Canada. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be doing and rewarding farmers for environmental protocols wherever they farm. Society wants us to do that. So society should pay us for that in, in terms of sustainability index attached to the food that we're growing. All we need is the data to prove it. Because at the end of the day, um, Jason, we're not trading carbon, we're trading data that says we've offset carbon. So that's where the data platforms come in. I want to talk a little bit, Rob, about another aspect of precision agriculture now that you've been highly involved in, and that is robotics. Tell us a little bit about your involvement in that 
aspect of agriculture? Uh, about 18 months ago, I founded a company called AgVisor Pro, and it's a startup that we'll talk about in a, in a bit. But during that time, uh, I had some excess capacity uh, as I had just completed the sale of AgriTrend and AgriData to Trimble. And a friend of mine, Nor Norbert Bougeau, uh, who uh, was the inventor of DOT, uh, DOT, the autonomous robotic platform, and Dot is named after his mom, Dorothy, and Norbert was out of Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, had invented a U-shaped platform uh, that was capable of coupling with a whole bunch of different farm equipment to uh, provide 100% autonomous robotic farming for broad acre agriculture. So the Dot is a U-shaped platform powered by a Cummins turbo engine and driven 100% autonomously and that dot unit can couple with a, a cedar, like a 30 foot, 300 bushel cedar, uh, or a 120 uh, foot, uh, 1600 gallon sprayer, or a new leader spin spreader. And uh, that dot platform is capable of running over that farm again and again and again in a 100% autonomous manner. So uh, Norbert asked me to provide some support as he was commercializing the platform. And uh, so I, I played a role in Raven coming in and buying a majority and then a 100% stake of, of DOT. Um, so Raven Industries out of South Dakota has purchased the DOT platform. And uh, with my mission complete there, I, I shifted over to AgVisor Pro to drive that initiative forward. But I'll say this, you know, when people asked me about robotics, I, I think we've taken some of our brightest talent in agriculture and we trapped them inside of a glass cage called a cab. And we trapped these people in these cabs for 12 to 16 hours a day for weeks on end. Well, the tractor steers itself. The sprayer has that all sorts of ability to monitor what it's doing. The only thing that we're in the cab for is to turn at the end of the row. Well, surely to God, we could do that autonomously. And if we could do it autonomously, we could dramatically reduce the capital cost of, of equipment to farmers because we don't have to build all the creature comforts into the implement. And that implement, such as a DOT platform, was capable of moving from operation to operation to operation. That reduces your operating costs as well. So I don't think it's a question of you know, when does autonomy come to farming operations? Uh, a question of if, it's just a question of when does it hit your farm? Because labor is the number one constraint on mo most farms today. And COVID is exacerbating that because of course it's harder and harder to get people. Um, and it's harder and harder to find qualified operators. So all of the big companies are gonna be chasing autonomization today. And uh, farmers are going to be with a faced with a bunch of choices as to how they decide to move autonomously into agriculture. It's an interesting topic that you bring up. And, you know, as you mentioned before, a very small percentage of the population are farmers. A very small percentage of the population is that workforce. So in your mind, what does a farmer look like, I don't know, 20 to 50 years into the future? Is it something like a video gamer, uh, you know, in a house controlling everything from a screen, um, a computer scientist. Do you see a shift from agronomic or labor support to more of an engineering and science workforce? 
what what is your vision of the future well i think that you know as more and more sensor technology variable rate technology precision ag technology and robotics hits the farm uh, we'll have a way to scale up uh, our uh, application technology uh, and our sensor technology will give us more information about where there's a problem in the field and maybe even what the problem is so i really see you know, I really see the high-tech side of agriculture uh, growing. Uh, again, if you could just see what I've seen in terms of sensor technology to be able to scout fields remotely, it's really quite incredible. However, for the foreseeable future, I do think that there's a combination of high-tech and high-touch. Um, I think that sensor technology and application technology will provide us with the where and the what like where do you have a problem in the field and and maybe even what the problem is but why is the problem there and how to fix it um, i think that's going to be the domain of the human being for a long time so as as farms get larger and as deep domain knowledge in agriculture becomes a scarcer commodity i think we've got to find a new way to connect the high touch of agricultural domain knowledge to the high-tech world of sensors and recommendations and robotic application. To that extent, that's why I built something called AgVisor Pro. AgVisor Pro is really uh, a connectivity platform. It's like Uber for brains. It connects people who have questions with experts that have answers, and it does that by basically triaging a question and through an algorithm we match the person who's got a question with potential experts that could answer the question and then we connect them with something called optical real-time connectivity think facetime inside of the agvisor pro application where there's audio video screen sharing picture sharing inside of the application, it's all archived and then a rating system and then a transaction to help pay for the experts. I think that COVID, the environment we're in right now, spring of 2020, is going to exacerbate the reasons for us to look at this remote coaching technology on farm. And so I think that we're gonna learn how to use technology like we've never done before to shrink time and space and to stretch brains and not bodies. You know, we have so many people that drive country roads to try to solve a problem for a farmer when really the solution is in his hand. Show me a picture of the bug uh, through AgVisor Pro and I can pro provi probably provide the diagnosis for you remotely without me having to be on the farm and physically contacting you. And I know that agriculture is a relationship industry. However, we're going to see a smaller and smaller percentage of the population actually farming and a smaller and smaller percentage of experts who have deep domain knowledge. I think technologies like AgVisor Pro connected to um, data sets and sensory technology and robotics that can apply the variable rate prescriptions is where we're headed. Yeah, that personal touch is probably never going to go away completely, but being able to connect uh, remotely is clearly a 
you know, wave of the future. If we can do that in medicine, as you mentioned with COVID, you know, the, the kind of emphasis on telehealth and meeting with your doctor remotely, we can certainly do that in agriculture. And I think this is an interesting effort that you're involved in here. Yeah, I think that we need to think more broadly. I mean, you and I aren't in the same room doing this podcast, although at one time it would have been really imperative that I be in the studio with you. Well, today we're not in studios. We're using technology to connect somebody in Olds, Alberta, Canada to somebody in Illinois, United States. Exactly. So, Rob, we've uh, we've covered a lot of topics here. And this, you know, I, I hope our listeners agree. I think they will, that this has been a fascinating conversation. And it might be hard to pin you down here to one or two things because you're such a you know, you have such a visionary approach to agriculture, but, you know, when we think about the future, and maybe you've already answered this question, but what gets you most excited about the future of agriculture? Well, I think it's the integration of technology on the farm. Um, I think that, you know, there are a couple of uh, challenges that we face in, in rural America, and one of that is broadband coverage. You know, you can't have a smart farm with a stupid internet connection, and uh, we need to have uh, we need to have a good internet connection. And you know, you can can you imagine a a, a company running a five or ten million dollar business in Chicago without an internet connection? And yet, there's <laughs> lots happened. of farms. There's lots of farms that are running that kind of business without adequate broadband. So I think that as we get you know some of these foundational roads and bridges of technology built to agriculture. Uh, sensor technology is going to proliferate. I think a lot of this stuff still is hard to make work. And uh, if you think back in the day, uh, you know, uh, where we had, uh, Jason, we had a variety of different hydraulic ends. You'll remember John Deere hydraulic ends, Pioneer hydraulic ends, Case hydraulic ends, and none of those hydraulics connected. And you were always carrying adapters and you were covered in, dig in hydraulic oil. You remember that? Yeah, uh, I remember it very well. In fact, sure. uh, you know, I have old equipment at home, so I know all about it. I still deal with it. <laughs> so you got to, you know, you're covered in hydraulic oil. Well, today, right now, we have people covered in digital hydraulic oil. The, the systems don't connect cleanly. So what gets me excited about agriculture is the new wave of opportunity for our young people. Agriculture is absolutely desperate for systems integrators, for people who understand how to integrate these systems and bring value. You know, you, you mentioned climate field view. Well, there's, there's great value in that, in that platform and we're not utilizing it. You, there's great value in, in, the, uh, in the yield map data that sits in John Deere case combines and and we're not utilizing it. We're not extracting the value from it. There's great value in having weather stations and, and moisture probes connected on a farm to make better decisions. Now, there's great value in having a remote sensing technology available, but we need systems integrators. And I think this is where I get really charged up. I, I'm very close to Olds College uh, that's doing a techronomy, a techronomist program. It basically connects agronomy to technology. I know in the United States, there are many colleges starting to move down this precision ag and technology path. And I get really excited about the possibility of, of stretching resources and allocating resources 
to grow a crop even more sustainably than we've done before with a smaller and smaller environmental footprint over time and demonstrating that we're doing that with transparency to the consumer and ultimately creating systems where farmers who are doing a really good job of, of growing crops and animal husbandry to get rewarded through some sort of a sustainability index. Those, those things excite me about the future of agriculture. Well, Rob, you've been extremely generous with your time with us here. Outside of buying the book, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, which I highly recommend. Um, I know that's available on Amazon. It's available in bookstores. It should be fairly easy to find. Is there another way that people can interact with you? You bet. Thanks for asking. I've got a website, www.robertsyke, S-A-I-K. So robertsyke.com, robertsyke.com. R-Syke, R-S-A-I-K on Twitter is a great way to reach me. And uh, at agvisor, A-G-V-I-S-O-R, P-R-O, agvisorpro.com, either on the website. Uh, you could download the app on iOS and Android and, and uh, desktop and, and also on Twitter. So there's some ways to follow what, uh, what I've been doing. Again, the book is Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. Thanks again, Rob. It's been my uh, pleasure to be on board with you guys. Uh, I hope that uh, the listeners can share this with their urban friends. I agree. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.